Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, I talked to John Elledge and George Eaton about the TV and election debates. Zan Rice, Jason Cowley and Shiraz Maher talk about the jihadi threat to Britain. And our old Bitcoin correspondent, Alex Hearn, talks to our new Bitcoin correspondent, Ian Steadman, about Bitcoin. The big question of the week revolves around leaders' debates. How many will we have? Will anybody be at them? Will David Cameron perhaps be replaced by a tub of lard, like on that episode of Have I Got News For You? I'm joined by George Eaton and by also John Elledge, who has strong thoughts on the subject. So I'm going to start with you, John. What are your strong thoughts? I have very strong thoughts. Um, Actually, I have incredibly weak thoughts. I think the whole thing is a little bit silly, isn't it? It it feels slightly like one of those debates. What, democracy, George? (laughs) John, even. (laughs) it feels like one of those debates that we're only having because like, there's no sort of real meat in politics at the moment. Like, it feels to me like none of the parties are willing to engage on any of the, the big issues at the moment. They're sort of talking past each other. So the Tories are desperate to talk about the economy and Labour are desperate to talk about the NHS. And until sort of one of them steps into the other's territory, they're just not going to touch each other. So we're, we're having this conversation instead. George, is that true? Are you and your brethren in the lobby merely focusing on this because you aren't doing any real work? Well, I think the reason the debates have, the debate about the debates is so prominent is because the broadcasters are obviously obsessed with it. So BBC News were, were, were leading on it yesterday. Um, I don't think that's probably the top story in, in most voters' eyes. And then I think it is because, of course, last time uh, was the first time they'd happened. Uh, They did have a significant impact on the campaign. I think the Lib Dems did a lot better as a result. They won a million more votes than they'd won in 2005 when the expectation was that they'd be squeezed after the anti-Iraq mood faded and as you had a a closer race between the the Tories and Labour. And a lot of Conservatives privately and some in public believe the TV debates were the reason they didn't win a majority. Um, The Conservatives are terrified about David Cameron being on a platform with Nigel Farage. George Osborne and Lindsay Crosby are of the view that it would, it would be best if the debates didn't happen at all. Cameron, of course, has now publicly taken the stance that if they do happen, the Greens have to be there, which they see as a way of harming Labour and compensating for the, the damage they think Farage would do to them. 
Isn't everybody, you mentioned that experience of the 2010 debates, so from what I understand, both the Labour and Tories did preparations where they had someone play Nick Clegg, I think in the case of the Tories it was Jeremy Hunt, and they, whoever was playing him, anticipated his arguments completely, you know, he, he sort of equidistant from eyes, both of them on many things, and he said, well, you know, this is the Westminster elite. So I suppose the fear this time is that they will not just have Maybe Nick Clegg might try that again, bless him, after you know, five years in government, it would be difficult. But the, the Greens and Farage would definitely be able to do that. Yes, and it's quite interesting also that David Cameron now is suggesting that he wouldn't want to do a three-way debate with Nick Clegg and Ed Miliband, which was one of the original proposals. And I think the logic behind that is that would allow Miliband to play the outsider. Mm. So these two men have been in, in government together, uh, look at the mess they've made of the country, it's time for change. Um, I think it's unclear at the moment whether whether they'll happen. Quite a lot of people think they won't happen at all. Um, I think there's still a chance that there will be some agreement simply because um, Cameron made such a play of them last time. I think it would be quite hard for him to back out. But he's clearly made the calculation that the cost of not doing the debates is lower than the likely cost of doing them. And John, you, uh, you know, you're being quite down on the concept of debates. For many people, they're aren't following politics and the kind of day-to-day rough and tumble that that we do if we don't have debates do you think there should there needs to be some other format or do you just think that it's up to people to find out about the parties and their policies well there never has been before i mean it's very odd the way we've we've done this once and now everybody is kind of leapt on it as if it's one of those america's done it for a really long time they always had presidential debates i mean that's why people go back to nixon kennedy as really changing that election there are many terrible imports from America. Um, that's, I don't necessarily think that's the reason to. I think the, the, the debates were were interesting in 2010. If you if you are interested in these things, um, I sort of think that if we do go ahead and we've got at least four party leaders on there, possibly five, or even at some point you kind of have to start wondering: well, should the Scottish Nationalists be in there as well? Um, I just can't quite see it being a conversation. It's going to be a lot of people kind of, sort of standing on a stage and sort of shouting uh, abuse. It would be a bit of a free-for-all. I'm just not what you're sure... What you think is you want an actual free-for-all? You just want an actual, like an arm wrestle or something I, like that? I, I would basically like it to be, yeah, like a, a particularly violent mosh pit is what I'm going for here. Um, but no, I'm, I'm just not sure how, how substantive uh, a debate is going to be. Once you've got that many people in there... They're all going to be sort of squeezed right down to the sort of one-liners to their core messages, and we kind of know what those are going to be, and they're the things we're going to be seeing in the, in the papers and on the television, regardless of whether these debates actually happen. So, what's your prediction for what will happen if you had to put money on it? Um, this is we're kind of getting to the point. Like George, George should be the expert on this. I'm 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 basically just a, a guy who likes the sound of his own voice in this scenario. <laughs> Um, but my my feeling is I can't see Cameron doing it because I, I think, as, as George rightly points out, it, it seemed at this point they think the, the dangers of doing it are much higher than the benefits because, you know, we in the bubble might think it's a bit embarrassing that Cameron is refusing to do these debates. But I suspect that out there in the real world, people are not that bothered about it, even if they're aware about it. Yeah, I suppose if Nick Clegg had refused to debate Farage no one really would have known about it, whereas he actually went and did it and got kind of creamed by all the, the poll ratings. Show. So, George, if we take the assumption that um, Cameron doesn't want to do it, we'll find a way to wiggle out of it. Do you think any of the broadcasters will be brave enough to empty chair him? 
No, I don't. So though, interestingly, Adam Bolton of Sky has been saying he shouldn't make the assumption that they won't. Um, I know there's an internal debate within the BBC. There are some quite senior figures who think the corporation should be prepared to empty chair him. Others who who think that would be who think that would be inappropriate. Um, I actually think there will be an agreement. I think there will be a five-way one with the Greens in there, and, and then a head-to-head between Cameron and Miliband. Um, and it's it's worth noting, I think, that. Of, of the main parties there's probably Labour who are the keenest for them to happen mm. because although as as John says a lot of the messages will be those we're hearing throughout the campaign Labour see it as as a rare opportunity for Miliband to speak directly unmediated to the country of course we know he doesn't get great write-ups from the press mm. uh, most of whom are, are conservative supporting and studies i think focus groups have shown that voters are often turned off by Miliband when they see short clips of him but when they listen to him over a longer period of time they start to warm to him more and, and he becomes more convincing uh Cam- Miliband has generally held his own uh, prime minister's questions since he's become opposition leader and so Labour's big hope is that since expectations would be so low he's the one who would benefit and, and that's another fear that that the Conservatives have. Okay well on that note I'll say thank you to both of you and to promise to John that next week we'll talk about the most boring detailed policy thing we possibly can to satisfy if, you. If we can do something on bus regulation one month that would be that would be particularly exciting. Do, do write in if you'd like to hear more about <laughs> that. Thank you both. Jason Cowley, editor of the New Statesman. With me today I have um, Shiraz Maha, a regular New Statesman writer, an expert in radicalisation and a senior fellow at King's College London. And I have also with me our features editor Zan Rice. Um, Most recently Zan was a foreign reporter in Africa for the Financial Times and The Guardian and is now with us at the Statesman. We have quite an incendiary cover line this week to go with your Excellent report, Shiraz. The jihad is among us. And I understand that in the last week you've been talking to several British jihadis in Syria about what they're thinking about the events in Paris. So tell us a little bit about what they're saying. The thing, um, well, what wasn't surprising was that the jihadis uh, universally supported what happened in Paris. They, um, they endorse it. They celebrated it. Um, but what really struck me as interesting is it seems right now that this attack is being ascribed to Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have a huge rivalry. Uh, as institutions, they are worlds apart. And on the ground, they are killing each other in Syria. They are beheading one another. So I thought it would be interesting to, to sort of prod these guys and to say, well, um, this is an Al-Qaeda attack. How do you feel about that? And what was very interesting was... was to, to a man, every single one of them uh, came out and said, you know, we support this. It doesn't matter who carried it out. What matters is that Charlie Hebdo was hit. What about the um, murder of the Muslim policeman, um, the mor- murder of the four innocent Jewish civilians at the kosher supermarket? I mean, is, is this, this is all part of the same war? It is part of the same war. Unfortunately, these guys believe in a concept called Wallah Walbara, and, and what it essentially means is to, to love and hate for the sake of God. And so they say you have to demonstrate your personal allegiance um, in your day-to-day life. And so if you're a policeman, you're part of the state. Mm -hmm. They regard the state as being oppressive towards Islam and Muslims. And as a result, uh, the policeman is fair game to them. 
they've not been so vocal in expressing their own thoughts about the Jews that were killed mm -hmm. in the kosher supermarket. And in a, in a kind of perverse way, that, that's actually a positive thing. They, mm -hmm. they, they don't know how to rationalize it at this moment. Uh, so, so a lot of the guys I talked to, I did ask them about it. No one came back to me with a solid answer. They said, well, we need to talk to our leaders. We, we'll Interesting. We'll back to you. Because the assassin, the um, French Malarian assassin, Koulibaly, who murdered the poor Jewish people in the supermarket, he said he was acting on behalf of or directed from Islamic State. He did. He uh, ascribed his actions to Islamic That's right. State. That's right. Whereas the, the French Algerian brothers, they themselves said they'd been directed by Al-Qaeda okay. in Yemen. Exactly. Um, and, and I think it's an, it's an important thing to, to, to note here is that I don't think this is a sign of a, of a, of a joint attack. Um, you know, we sometimes uh, sort of overthink these things. These were guys who knew each other for, for years and years. They, they were friends, and they were radical friends. And so that social bond overrides institutional allegiances. Two guys are in favor of Al-Qaeda, the other guy is in favor of Islamic State. Um, that their personal views sort of were, were overridden by that overriding desire to, to hit Charlie Hebdo and, and to, to do this attack that we saw. The, um, obviously, you're, you have sources and good contacts in the security services. And the, the head of MI5, Andrew Parker, gave what I thought was actually quite a problematic speech last week. I mean, he delivered it after the, after the, the murders and the attacks. And it was almost, I, I thought it could be read as um, a plea for more powers. And it was rather alarmist. And it gave the, the newspapers an opportunity to publish some extremely alarming headlines. But what is your sense about the mood inside Britain? How uneasy are the security services? So I think there's two points to, to make it. Um, I do believe Andrew Parker is right when he talks about the threat being uh, wrapped right up, but in a way we haven't seen for, for a few years. Um, we've had a 30% increase in, uh, in police work related to this. Three major terrorist plots have been thwarted in the UK in the last few months relating to, to Syria. Three plots? Three plots. Really? Do you know so, of what kind? Um, well, they're going to trial right now, but, mm. but there are some involving guns right. uh, of, of, the type that, uh, of the type we saw in, in Paris. Mm. Um, so th th there's clearly a threat here. Mm. Um, he, he then uses that to say we need more yes. powers. Now, that is a debate. Look, fundamentally, there are encrypted services where you can talk to people in Syria and vice versa uh, that security service still can't get into. They, they don't know how to hack into that encryption service. As a society, we need to have a discussion. At the moment, the discussion is between the security service and the government. Yes. As a society, we need to decide where we are comfortable with how much power we've devolved to them mm -hmm. and how much we're, we're willing to give up. Um, and, and that's the, the really important thing for, for us to, to look at because we, we could create a totalitarian state where, where nothing happens, but clearly we don't want to go that way. So um, it, it is a debate for civil society to engage in and, and to, to feel... And indeed, the publications about. like The Statesman and The Guardian and others um, will, will create, Very space, for, for this will create the space for that, for that conversation and debate. Um, what is the sense among British jihadis? I mean, are they are they very keen to to hit the British state, and if so, what would what would their target? Who are their targets? They have all um, not just people in Islamic State, but other Brits who are affiliated with other groups 
have all universally, I've seen a, a great change in their attitude towards Britain since the coalition bombing started. Right. They are very anti-British now. They regard all attacks against the UK as being fair game. Mm. Um, and, and so we have to accept that, that we're in a, a state now mm. where uh, these guys do want to attack us. And realistically, um, you know, without being uh, uh, sort of alarmist, it, it's almost inevitable something will happen mm. in the UK at some stage. And would that be a, a lone wolf attack? Would it be something more coordinated? I mean, what was so shocking, um, and, and the attacks in Paris were shocking at every level, but what was so shocking is how um, well organised it seemed. I mean, here, here are guys turning up with Kalashnikovs and bulletproof vests, commando style, obliterating a group of journalists at their editorial meeting. I mean, I mean incredible. It was, and, and what they've realised is Al-Qaeda's attacks, and jihadi attacks in general, have always been about a little bit of element of theatre. 9-11 mm. played out very well for them. It provided these, these very dramatic pictures. Um, and, and so they've always had this element of theatre. Now, the security service has become very good at stopping people who want to build bombs, who want to put stuff together. Uh, and to, to construct a bomb requires a lot of work. But they're moving towards this more... Um, sort of easygoing attitude, essentially. Yeah. Just do it, essentially. And, and, and that's very, very difficult to stop. And it doesn't need to be, even, even a gun, which is, I, I believe in the UK, so it's still relatively hard to get. Yeah, it, is. Um, it doesn't need to be that. Well, we saw with Lee Rigby, if you kill someone with ordinary everyday tools, mm. if the target is politically sensitive, it can create a huge impact. So, th so they know how to capture the imagination with what they're doing. And in the um, wired-up digital culture, everyone has mobile phones, people record these atrocities, and then they, they, they circulate. Zan, Zan, do you want to come in here? Yeah, I mean, just perhaps while you're talking about that, you talk about the, the terrorist threat intensifying and mutating. And you make the point that the most significant strikes in, on Western soil in recent months in Canada, France, and Australia have all involved gunmen operating alone or in, in small groups. Mm. Sort of over what time period has this threat mutated? Um, and the second part of the question is, you say it's almost impossible to stop these these types of attacks. Um, why why do you think this is? And, and, and is it inevitable that we will see something like this in the UK at some stage? So there was a, a very important preacher called Anwar Olaki, who was with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, if you follow these issues, you, you kind of know him. Um, and Olaki realized, look, all these plots are failing. Um, if you remember, in the UK, we, we, every summer there was a huge plot that was uncovered and, and dismantled. Uh, the, the best example of that being the, the liquid uh, bomb plot. Yes. That was 19 people involved in a, in a huge criminal conspiracy. I mean, it's, it's a very, very big uh, plot. So they decided, OK, what can we do to get around this? How, how can we dupe the security service, essentially? And so they said, OK, just kill people doesn't need to be this big complicated thing just kill people mm. provided you hit the right target provided it's sensitive it's fine and so the, that played out and you know I mean, Roshnor Chowdhury is a great example of this she stabbed Stephen Timms mm. a member of parliament because mm. of the way he voted in the comments yeah, I mean, the Labour MP it's, yeah. it's a remarkable thing that he was fortunate he survived that Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But can you imagine the repercussions if he had died? And, and the, the political symbolism of, of what that would have meant. Um, so it, clearly they, they've caught on to this thing. It's an everyday act. You can go to Argos, buy a knife, and, and you're on your way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like building a bomb. So it, I, I feel it is inevitable. The, the, the number of people involved get smaller. The attack is a lot easier planned, and, and that's it. They, they are very committed to pulling something like this off. You... Um in your essay, you touch on um, blasphemy, and you also uh, mention the very disturbing case of the Saudi blogger and journalist Raif Badawi, who um, has been put on trial, been charged, and is now has has to be flogged every week, yeah. as well as being in prison for ten years. Can you talk a little bit about his case? And what this tells us about Saudi Arabia and its barbarism. Badawi is a liberal blogger. He uh, believes in human rights. He's someone we would identify with in terms of he resonates w- with our values. And the Saudis fundamentally believe he is uh, a threat to the state. The Saudis actually passed a law earlier on this year which equated uh, atheism with terrorism. So nice. if you are publicly atheist, it's a terrorist offense in, in the Saudi state. Uh, and so Badawi was, was picked up, um, sentenced as a very draconian uh, measure. The State Department tried to convince the Saudis not to carry it out. Um, but, but they did. And, and you know, they were flogging this man on the streets of Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. 50 lashes uh, every Friday for them, however long it will take them to, to carry it out. And um, their foreign minister was, was marching in Paris last mm-hmm. Sunday. It, it's, 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 a, it's a remarkable it? hypocrisy. What can what 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 can what what well, we can protest as as Western journalists? But what should Western governments do when Saudi Arabia is um, such a such a strong ally of the West? Saudi Arabia is an incredibly important ally, mm. uh, particularly of our country. We have uh, huge defence contracts with. The and you've lived there, haven't you? I, I grew up there. Mm. I spent fourteen years in Saudi Arabia. Um, the Al Yamama defence contract actually is Al Yamama is a very well known mm. defence deal within Saudi society. Um, so it, it does matter to them, uh, and th- but they understand the power that they can exercise over us as a result. It, it is very, very difficult to, to, to know how best to deal with a state like Saudi Arabia because clearly they are important to us, but they don't meet us in any capacity on our values in, in, in any shape or form. Um, and, and I make the, piece of, uh, make the point of the article, which is, how do they differ in that context from, from Islamic State, mm. who we are bombing, we're at war with, mm. we regard as a terrorist organisation, but, but Islamic State essentially does the same thing when it comes to blasphemy. And one, one could argue, and this is complex, complex material, maybe, maybe not for today, but um, Saudi has done so much to sponsor a, a radical form of Islam, Wahhabism, 
and we have had many Wahhabi preachers in our in our mosques in the United Kingdom, and these these characters have done so much to radicalise the young British Muslim young in in this country. So there's a it, it's almost circular, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia has propagated this Wahhabist ideology around the world. It has spread this very literalist interpretation of Islam, which is dogmatic, it's confrontational, it's disengaged from modernity, and because they've got the money to do it, they are streets ahead of everyone else. And that, that is a big problem to, yeah. to undermine. Okay, so um, we've covered a, a, a lot of ground there, as ever, I'm sure. As I urge everyone to um, buy the magazine and read your cover story and follow all of your New Statesman commentary online. And thanks very much, Zan. I hope you'll be appearing more often on our um, podcast. And thanks again. Thank you. science correspondent Ian Steadman and I'm joined this week uh, by former New Statesman science tech correspondent Alex Hearn. Uh, hello Alex. Hello Ian. The old tech you. For them. Yes you are the old me or I'm the new you we can look at it that way. <laughs> uh, the reason uh, we're going well the, the thing that brings us together this week is Bitcoin which um, I know you know we think about it fairly often because it's our jobs but for people <laughs> they might not have been thinking about it for much over the last year which is right. a problem because it's becoming apparent that bitcoin is kind of falling apart isn't it yeah i mean it seems like what everyone kind of knew in their heart over the period when bitcoin was the new hotness is that it's it's something that thrives on attention that ultimately, you know, for all, whether or not you thought it was in a speculative bubble or uh, growing to its natural end stage of each coin being worth a million dollars, either way, all of that was predicated on people talking about it and its use only ever increasing and interest in it only ever increasing. And what seems to have happened over the last year is that that kind of stopped. It, it's not I mean, different people will tell you different stats. And I know, for instance, Coinbase are adamant that actual real world use of Bitcoin is stable and growing. They point to the fact that over the whole of 2014, they signed up 10 billion dollar companies to the currency, which is obviously, you know, objectively good news for it. But at the same time, it doesn't counter the fact that people stopped People, general people, the sort of people who don't own Bitcoin, but one day in the future will have to if the currency is going to take off, they stopped caring about it a year ago. And I have to say, I stopped caring about it. About a year ago. <laughs> there was, uh, you know, there were lots of articles um, to recap. It kind of peaked in what was it November 2013. It peaked at about twelve hundred dollars yeah. per Bitcoin, which was um, famously at the time was was more than the price of gold. Like, um, but then the, the bubble burst, and with it, a lot of press attention and public attention um and that's that's kind of the irony here is that it became kind of banal almost you know yeah it became a mainstream thing for in a, in a way on the internet a lot of companies like you can buy websites and cars and pizzas and god knows what else there are major sporting events like the bitcoin bowl that are sponsored from companies but at the same that that kind of should be making it a mainstream thing but instead it just makes it really boring and normal Right, exactly. And also, I mean, 
tying into that is the whole thing of everyone thought that the inevitable death of Bitcoin would be when one of these bubbles burst and it just plummeted. You know, it's had it's had these speculative bubbles and even Bitcoin fans will accept that there are there have been bubble moments in Bitcoin, whether or not the total value of the currency is itself a bubble is an answer that remains to be seen but certainly you know bitcoin hitting a thousand and then dropping down to 600 again that was a speculative bubble um the thing is what's actually happened is each of those there's been enough true believers and enough people buying in at the bottom that the currency has been saved from those crashes and it turns out that actually the the, the death of bitcoin is not with a bang but a whisper it's been a year of steady decline boring plateaus, but no big spikes to get attention and also no big drops to get attention. Just really no attention at all. It's been a very, it's very, a very constant but gradual decline in the last 12 months to the extent, and this week it's people start noticing again because it's dropped below $200 for the first time since, uh, for the last couple of years, I think. And, and at the same time, there's been a marked uptick in transaction volume as it looks like, um, you, go, you know, going on forums and, and Reddit and places like that, it seems like a lot of the the hedge funds and other large groups who bought big in Bitcoin uh, last year before then are now shedding it as fast as yeah. they can. The New York Times also has a theory that there's a there's a squeeze involved as well. Mm. That the problem you have is that if you were starting up a, a company specifically and frequently a Bitcoin mining company, you you know you couldn't buy everything you needed in Bitcoin no matter how hard you tried. So you'd need to take out your loans in in dollars or in some other you know typically denominated currency. Now, a year on, those loans are being called in and people are having to sell their Bitcoin to pay. Bitcoin, which they had been hoarding, hoping for a tenfold increase in value to pay off their bills, they, they've just had to sell. And a, a massive glut of sales of Bitcoin from people who suddenly find that they can't pay all of their bills in cryptocurrency will always put a squeeze, which then, of course, means that even more people panic, realize that they're going to have to sell Bitcoin to pay the bills. And so you get that free fall that we've seen in the last two days, which is the first time it's gone from being a gentle slope downwards to something more dramatic. Mm. And so it's something that, that I'm hearing more and more from people who are involved in Bitcoin and people who are involved in you know allied areas, be that libertarianism or fringe economics, is that uh, the, the blockchain is the next big thing. And the, the analogy is that the bit that Bitcoin is an application of the blockchain. That if Bitcoin is something like email, a, a new technology, the blockchain is is the internet. Um, it's it's the fundamental basis of of Bitcoin, and Bitcoin couldn't exist without a blockchain. But that there's more you can do with it. Blockchain is is this decentralized ledger used primarily now for recording what Bitcoins are where. Uh, it's it's also a wonderful. Uh, not technological leap, but almost conceptual leap, the idea of using this proof of work, these these complex mathematical problems where you essentially just have to burn processing power to put your stamp of credibility on what you're saying is and isn't the case. Uh, a, a bunch of new companies have sprung up in the last six or 12 months who've basically gone, well, using the blockchain just to record financial transactions is a waste. There's so much more you can do with it. So there's one London-based company called Eris Industries, which hopes to build almost a shadow internet on it, using the blockchain to do jobs that are analogous to the domain name servers and even just the, the simple hosts that run the internet. 
Um, at the other end, there's people who want to use it to replace the stock exchange. There's people who want to use it to uh, make legally binding contracts, sort of who want to use it to make legally binding contracts that you can actually do computations with. But the problem is all of this relies still on people crunching this proof of work. If if there's not people burning processing power to place their stamp of plausibility on any given transaction, the whole concept of a blockchain falls apart. And what will be interesting over the next year is if the price of Bitcoin continues to collapse and mining companies turn their rigs off as they go bankrupt, how useful is the blockchain in a world where there aren't these people doing these sums to make thousands of dollars from their Bitcoin investments and people just doing it out of the goodness of their heart to provide a backbone for an internet replacement? That that doesn't seem much like how technology has worked to date. Exactly. And there's a further irony as well in that people are uh, sort of ganging together into what are called mining pools. To um, They pool their shared re- uh, processing power and then in the, and they share the proceeds from from mining, which kind of makes sense as a response to increasing investment costs in mining. But the problem with that is um, the decentralized nature of Bitcoin relies on no single person being able to control more than fifty percent of all the verification of what's happening transaction wise. But if you get to a situation where the only way to make money with Bitcoin is to you know, join a big mining pool. And that kind of undermines, like, what's the point then? It's not a decentralized currency. And that's something that's really going to be a, a struggle for Bitcoin as well. Yeah, I mean, one thing I find quite interesting is that, so the the machinery of Bitcoin still chugs away. And this is obviously part of their big hope is that just because no one's paying them attention doesn't mean that uh, improvements aren't happening. One thing that happened two days ago and you can debate whether or not it's an improvement, but the Winklevoss filed their SEC uh, documents that they needed to file to be able to run their Bitcoin hedge fund, essentially. Um, the the Winklevoss being Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, the two uh, men who, whether or not they were involved in Facebook from an early age is one of those open legal questions, but certainly who made a lot of money from their relationship with Mark Zuckerberg in the early days of Facebook. Um, the the Winklevoss SEC filing, like all these things, has to lay out potential dangers for for their new financial uh, corporation, and it's kind of brilliant because it's just a massive, massive list of everything that can go wrong with Bitcoin. It's the sort of thing that you don't see people who are heavily invested in Bitcoin writing all that often because the the structure of Bitcoin doesn't require them to. The SEC, which is the American Securities and Exchange Commission, does. The documents have to be true and have to fully, candidly and accurately lay out risk factors with respect to their proposed trust. So they've just got this long, long list of things. Like you say, 51% attacks, which is where someone controls 51% of the pool, are a real threat. So they, you know, they, they have to write that if someone gets control of the mining pool, that could kill Bitcoin. Similarly, they write that uh, the whole problem with block reward halving, which is something that we haven't even talked about yet, uh, that could in, down the line cause its own problem. That miners get rewarded, miners get given a lump sum of Bitcoin. Uh, one miner gets given a lump sum of Bitcoin every ten minutes based on uh, how quickly they solved the uh, algorithms that are at the heart of Bitcoin. Um, at the same time, uh, those 
those rewards halve every four years. They've halved once and it didn't do that much problem. But as time goes on, as electricity costs go up and the value of Bitcoin stays stable, the, the block rewards are going to be less and less valuable to miners. No one knows what will happen with that. Then they have to admit that they've priced their whole thing using Bitstamp, which is all, uh, using a index which includes Bitstamp. Great in December when they filed the documents. Not so great now, given Bitstamp was just hacked. Uh, it's still the biggest Bitcoin provider, but it's suddenly a bit cagier if you're trying to do your multi-million dollar Bitcoin investment trust using it. And, that, and, and thefts are still far too easy in Bitcoin generally. And it's also not something which you really want to have to admit in your uh, SEC filing. But they do. Security breaches, computer malware and computer hacking attacks have been a prevalent concern in the Bitcoin exchange market since the launch of the Bitcoin network, they're forced to admit. I mean, their document does read like a long, long list of reasons why you really, really wouldn't want to invest in their company. Yeah. So I guess the, uh, the, the, the thing that, that Bitcoin um, advocates have to hope for now is that all those companies that have signed up to accept Bitcoin and all those people working on alternative uses of blockchain, that's enough to sustain Bitcoin from now on. Or if not Bitcoin, some other cryptocurrency that kind of takes inspiration from it. Exactly that. I think actually the, the big question for Bitcoin over the next year will kind of be whether, whether stability is a thing that it can live for. Every company that's signed up for Bitcoin right now, without without exception, really, is doing it on the basis of uh, plans for the future. They're not doing it based on the money now. They're doing it based on the fact that they hope that they'll be in on the ground floor or something which is big and they're getting their infrastructure out of the way uh, soon. If it stops growing, if it stays stagnant, the next time one of these companies gets a new payment provider or redesigns its website, are they going to keep the Bitcoin integration? And that for me is the big question. You know, if in eight months time, Dell rehauls its website and removes Bitcoin payments, that I think would be the beginning of the end. I mean, not just Dell, I'm not implying Dell has the power to kill it, but that, you know, things can stay stable while everyone who's adopted adopted it keeps it once they start dropping it that's the real problem yes well we'll wait and see thanks very much alex thank you very much for talking to you you've been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis and produced by ian steadman and anna leskovich our theme music is devil with the devil by the understore orchestra licensed under creative commons you can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
the secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.